Welcome to episode 403 with my guest, Mariel Hemingway. Minneapolis, I am coming next weekend to do two live shows, uh, Saturday, October 13th at Sisyphus Brewing, uh, five o'clock show with comedian Chell Borgen and eight o'clock show with return guest Nora McInerney. Nora is the host of Terrible Thanks for Asking. I'll put the links to all of uh, the info and how to get tickets again next Saturday, October 13th in Minneapolis. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Uh, it's more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also uh, the handles that you can follow me at on social media. Uh, got some interesting uh, emails uh, this week from from people, and I wanted to try to cram all the stuff in uh, for this week's show, but I have to be realistic, and so I'm just going to give some summaries of uh, some of the stuff that I wanted to share with you guys, be it an email or a, uh, or a survey. Uh, I got an email from Audra, who, um, whose father uh, used to punish her by locking her in the dark for hours, and she wasn't allowed to move or sit on the floor, and if she cried, um, she was giving, given more punishment time, and she wanted to know if she thinks it has harmed her psychologically or could be called abuse um, because she feels like she's making too big of a deal out of it, and man that that is so clearly abusive and if authorities were notified that a parent was treating a child that way um child protective services would be dispatched and uh did i say dispatched <laughs> they would take the patch away <laughs> cuz kids are on the nicotine patch and you know, a lot of times, by the time they're five or six, they've just, the emphysema sets in and they got to get on the patch. But then by second grade, they're like, this is ridiculous. I'm so wound up on the playground. I need to do something. <laughs> and so Child Protective Services comes in and removes their nicotine patch. <laughs> Uh, but I, I wrote Audra back and said, you are absolutely not making too big of a deal uh, out of this. That is horrifying. And um, uh, it's amazing that the ways that we will minimize the stuff that happened to us. But if we hear of it happening to somebody else, then we can have objectivity about it. Uh, Eric sent me an email. Um, he took exception to the interview I had with James Murray, uh, who had uh, extolled the benefits of taking ayahuasca. And um, he, Eric has a son who had a psychotic break from ayahuasca and has yet to recover. And uh, Eric insists that there are many more people like his son, and he begged me not to promote its use, um, even though some say that it has helped them. And when James shared uh, 
his positive experience with it. I said, I have no personal experience with it, so I can't say one way or the other, but the one thing I, I want this show to be is an open discussion of people's experiences, not to be an authority on something. I'll give my opinion sometimes about, about stuff, but I don't feel informed enough to make any kind of opinion. And I thought it was important to read Eric's thoughts, um, so that I can present, uh, you know, as thorough a, a picture uh, as as I can. Uh, Julie from California uh, emailed me with a beautiful uh, success story of uh, recovering from her childhood sexual abuse. Uh, she found, uh, we mentioned a lot of times the Rape and Incest National Network is a great place, uh, and the website is org, and it is a great resource for getting free or low-fee counseling. Uh, if you have ever experienced any kind of uh, sexual um, assault or trauma, uh, no matter how far back it, it happened, and she had just completed her weekly trauma therapy. She'd been going every week for two years. And I guess she was going to the Peace Over Violence Center. And she is changing and healing. And I, I love hearing that. Um, I got an email from Sophia. Actually, it was a, it was a survey uh, from Sophia who was feeling anxious, depressed, angry, bloated, tired, and she f- went to see a naturopath. I think somebody had recommended it to her and was diagnosed as having a fungal overgrowth in her gut. And lo and behold, um, got her. they got her on a regimen of changing how she ate and I think taking supplements and stuff like that and natural things. And um, she, her gut is healing and her mood is uh so much better. And I'm a big believer in the connection between the gut and mood. And there's a book called The Body Ecology Diet, which really, really helped me. I tried to go off my meds after I healed my gut doing that book, but I needed to go back on them uh, when I obsessively thought about suicide. I was like, okay, I guess I needed to heal my gut and still take my meds. Um and at the end of her survey, she she wanted to know how I was doing with um, the morning of Herbert, my beloved little dog that uh, that died about uh, I don't know a year and three months ago. Um, it's getting better. I I um, it it doesn't uh, feel like a punch in my stomach to realize that that he's gone we had him for about 12 years and he was just such a fucking character and a big part of this show they're talking about him and his personality and his butthole and all kinds of shit but um my ex has a uh, puppy named grady who i go visit uh when i go visit ivy who is the dog that we still share and uh there's just something about being around a puppy and they're just that positive attitude and that excitement and the affection. It just, it, it's one of the ways I, I treat my depression. There's a shitload of ways that I do it, but that's, that's one of them. Um, <clears throat> but thank you for asking. Uh, and then I just want to read, uh, two surveys. This first one is an awful moment 
filled out by a woman who calls herself sorry if this is TMI. No, if there is a place for TMI, this show is it. Uh, she writes, I woke up one morning and for the life of me, I couldn't remember if I had removed or changed my tampon the night before. I had had a few drinks. I quickly dashed to the bathroom to change it in fear of getting toxic shock syndrome for having a tampon in for over eight hours, but there was no string. I panicked. I didn't want to put another one in for fear that my body had sucked up that one and that it would be stuck in me forever. Uh, I think the term for that is it, it went yo-yo on you. Uh, so, <laughs> so I tried to live a normal day, but I struggled with anxiety and I couldn't focus all afternoon and I was super fidgety. My fiance noticed my rapidly drumming fingers and disjointed thoughts and asked what was wrong. After a lot of trying to change the subject and blushing, I finally told him. He chuckled and then asked if I wanted him to check and he could see and see if he could uh, find it or not. Well, if that's not mortifying, but also a true symbol of love, I don't know what is. That is beautiful. And what a perfect, awfulsome moment. Um, and just in the future, if you're having trouble finding your tampon, I don't know if this is, will work, but the thought occurred to me is get um, go to Home Depot, get a stud finder, put it on the lightest setting, and then just move it around your area. And if you hear something beep, investigate. Um, and then this is an awful moment filled out by a woman uh, who calls herself, uh, am I a good enough mother? And she writes, I just recently started listening to your podcast and have fallen in love with it. I seriously cannot get enough. Uh, I'm in my early 30s, uh, married and a mother of three. My mother was barely 21 years old when she had me, had the sense of a 16-year-old, and my biological father was 26 years old, and neither of them graduated high school. My mom quickly learned that her relationship with my dad would not last. He was a narcissistic, alcoholic, and drug addict, and was abusive in every way, and left him when I was two years old. My dad responded with trying to kidnap me multiple times while high on crack. One of his attempts was him taking my mother and I, I was three to four years old, and remember bits and parts of this, in her car, and he was high, and he pulled over and dragged her out of the car and beat her head into a chain-linked fence with me in the back seat watching, and then ran off, I believe, because someone must have called the cops, uh, and they showed up shortly after. This was my first time in the back of a cop car. The funniest time was seeing him sneak into my grandmother's bathroom window and going into my room and taking me out of my bed and running down the street with me in his arms. I was about two years old and my grandmother in her bra and granny panties standing in the road shooting at him with a shotgun. No one was hurt. I was told this story by my grandmother, my mother, and my father. My father then runs into an apartment complex. This took place in Fresno, California in 1988, so it was a decent-sized town. And someone asks my dad, is someone shooting off a gun? My dad replies, yes, that's my mother-in-law shooting at me, and then takes off. Not sure what happened after this, but I imagine the cops came. This was when one of the many crazy fucked-up things that happened in my childhood. Fast forward about seven, eight years, and my mom chose another winner who I referred to as stepdad, but never called stepdad because the one time I did, he told me I only said that because he did something nice for me. 
Another narcissistic abusive asshole, minus the street drugs, not so much alcohol, add in Valium and probably other prescription drugs. My stepdad controlled every aspect of my mom's life, and our house was filled with tension, screaming, and broken windows and doors. We moved constantly, mooched off of whoever we could, and at times lived in motels. I hated being home so much that as much as I missed my mother, I chose to stay and at times live with my grandparents or my aunt. Thankfully, I was only a child and had two stepbrothers who rarely came to visit because they too hated their father. One summer, which was for some reason, which for some reason seemed to be when my parents fought the most, probably due to the fact most of the fights were about me and school was out and my stepdad was jealous of my mom's love for me and wanted my mom all to himself. My parents had been arguing for days and my stepdad would lock me outside during these times or times when my parents would fuck loudly and were not discreet. And I would wander around our acre yard playing with rocks and sticks. We didn't have a working phone at the time and would walk to the neighbor next door or other neighbors a quarter mile down the road to use the phone to call my grandmother to come get me. I left two to three voicemails over a span of a few hours begging her to come get me because my mother and stepdad were having a really bad fight and I did not want to be there anymore. My grandparents on my mother's side were avid drinkers the kind who use Baileys as their coffee creamer. And my grandpa always had to have a road beer, so when they showed up around 2 p.m., feeling pretty good, I was not surprised. And yes, this is the grandmother who ran down the street in her bra and panties with a shotgun. But this time, they were carrying a handgun. But don't worry, it isn't loaded, is what they whispered to me when they showed me what they had brought when they came to my rescue. I proceeded to scream and freak out, and then my grandpa put his hand over my mouth and reassured me they weren't going to shoot my stepdad, just scare him. My mom comes outside and, in their drunken state, do the same to her. Do a little peekaboo with the crumpled-up paper bag in my grandfather's hand and calmly explain they just want to threaten the dickhead inside and encouraged my mom to take this and that and let's go. Next thing I know, My grandpa and mom are wrestling on the ground for the gun, and my mom's long dress is going up, and she has no underwear on, and it becomes a Jerry Springer show in my front yard. I run to the neighbors next door to call 911 because I was nine years old and didn't know what to do. I come back, and through the front window of our house, my stepdad is leaning out the window and grabbing the gun out of my grandpa's hand, and they are fighting over it. My mom screams and tell them she doesn't want them to go to jail and to leave. Finally, this stops, and my grandparents calmly look at me and say, Well, are you coming with us? And my mom looks at me as if she was saying, It's okay if I do. And I reply, No. I think you guys drank a little much. If it's okay, I'll stay here. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scott face. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, 
uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Mariel Hemingway. Um, for people who have lived under a rock, um, Mariel is an actress, an author. She did a documentary uh, on the history of what you call it dysfunction, mental illness in your in your family, addiction, mental addiction. illness, depression. Yeah, it's funny because you can't separate any. It's all no. a big tangled bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> and um, uh, her grandfather is uh, Ernest Hemingway, and uh, I guess he wrote a couple books. Just Did a he, few. He liked to fiddle. Yeah, on the typewriter. Um, exactly. Where do we begin with? with your story you know what i what were his parents like your grandfather Ernest, yes. Ernest parents interesting that you should ask that because i'm such a believer that you know we we unfold based on where we come from um his mother was a very religious um kind of puritanical woman they lived outside of Illinois, chicago illinois and and she oh, was from Oak Park, right? Yeah. 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 So he, um, she was just hard. She was a difficult woman, very challenging. Just that, that sort of, you know, it was kind of <laughs> the Victorian age, even though they, we weren't in England, but there was something about the way she just set things up. Um, she was just, uh, from what I can r glean from what you read is that she was a very intense woman and very judgmental of my grandfather, Ernest. His father was a doctor. Uh, his father also committed suicide. Um, so uh, how, it was how, just, how old was uh, his, his father when he... He was in his 20s, I think. So he wow. was... Yeah. So he, he was, never really knew his father very well did he oh no 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 his no his he was oh, he Ernest was, was, Ernest in, his was in, okay. in his 20s when his father took his okay. life um i could have that wrong uh okay. i think that's god i think that's the case um and he uh so anyway parents are very strict and you know intense and according to <laughs> People that have done biographies on my grandfather, that, and you can see it in the pictures, she dressed him like a little girl for a long time. Now, part of that it was that time, you know, they they put the sort of dresses on little people <laughs> when they were small, but it deeply affected him, and he was he just was angry at her forever. Um, so yeah, that's as much as I really know about the two of them. Um, did he have siblings? He did. He had a brother, Lester, and a sister, Sonny, um, who I, I, and there might be another sibling. Gosh, that's sad. I think that's just the two. Good Lord. Um, anyway. Yeah, and, back there uh, in that time, it's like one, <laughs> one fell out of a window, right? nine died at childbirth. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, they had 
their family and I didn't I I think I met Sonny once when I was very 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 young. Um I never met Lester. He also took his life. So wow. A lot of that going around in my family. <laughs> then um your parents. My parents. So my mother is a native Idahoan, which mm. is where I spend a great deal of my time. I grew up there. Um, Actually, be- before we do that, let's let's rewind and just talk a little bit more about uh, your your grandfather. Yeah. Um, how do you believe um, his upbringing affected him? Uh, was was he? Uh, would you say alcoholic? Oh, yeah. Okay. Most definitely. And, you know, I think it, it was a different time. So people drank, you know, mm-hmm. that was part of the thing. And that's also what became part of his, his folklore that became part of his story is the, the man that drank and lived life big and all that stuff. But what it started to do was just, you know, like addiction does, it weighed heavily on his, on his mental state at all times, putting a depressant in, in a person who is probably would now be diagnosed bipolar. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think, cause he had manic highs and, you know, and then, but the alcohol, and I'm a big believer that addiction is a, is a real instrument to, you know, igniting that sort of mental distress Absolutely. That, that happens. It's like when you feel dead inside, whatever, makes you feel alive even if the repercussions are terrible it is it seems like at the time like a better choice yeah. than walking around feeling dead inside yeah yeah and and so i understood that but it started very early on um and again in a time where people didn't think that alcohol was an issue for anybody especially I mean, just, if you're an author with oh bravado God. and a risk taker well and i also think that my grandfather created that that you know, bravado created that. I I think he changed the way American, uh, writers wrote. Um, you know, they, everybody wanted to be a Hemingway esque character. They wanted to drink a lot and live a, a, you know, a larger than life life. Um, so he, he, um, he did that. So he was self-medicating. I'm absolutely convinced that he was, you know, I think, probably very early on because uh i know that my grandmother who was a an incredible woman who loved him desperately and and he loved her but he was a challenge he was a difficult man i mean even when he was in his 20s how could he have the capacity to be intimate with the relationship he had with his mother i mean the amount of fear of being vulnerable and being tender must have been overwhelming. Yeah, I think that, uh, and also she just, she was so judgmental and thought that he was, that, that what he wrote was disgusting. I mean, she wrote letters that were just vile. She thought he was absolutely just like part of the, he was on the devil's, you know, yeah. roster. He was just, he was just doing, just horrible things in her mind and that just accentuated his need to be to be big to be boisterous to be to talk to live the life and i'm sure it's why he left my grandmother Mm -hmm. um not because he didn't love her but because 
it was like defiling everything that he was brought up to believe about marriage, about this, about that. And um, so, yeah, he was he he really struggled with having the ability to be to be vulnerable. Yeah. Although if you re if you really are a a reader of my grandfather's works, you can see that he he really I mean, there was a sensitivity in him that was extraordinary and an ability to see women. I think he's misinterpreted a lot. Um, he has in throughout time as being, you know, nothing but machismo, nothing but, but he wasn't. If you see his female characters, Lady Brett in, in The Sun Also Rises, I mean, women with tremendous power and, and heart, um, he created women that I think he wished his mother to be, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and he was with strong women. He was with women that had incredible brains and and mm-hmm. and really vibrant women in his life. So I, I it wasn't that he lacked an ability to be vulnerable. It just it it, it he he couldn't show that in the real outside world. of the typewriter. Yeah. It was hard for for yeah. him. Yeah, which is fitting of so many. Um, artists is through their art they can have the voice that they long to have in yeah. in real life because it's safe 100 percent. and you could say oh it's my character you yeah. know or it's yeah. it's this i mean yeah. you know you're you're an actor yeah and, uh, yeah I, i'm sure you have experienced moments uh, in movies where you say things that you wish you could say in real life or do in real life are there any that that come to mind um you know, it's interesting. I, I, my characters were almost a little shadowing of how I was feeling emotionally and where I was, had the ability to be clear. Um, for instance, when I did Star 80, um, there was a sense of victim in me, a bit of a martyr. And so I played this character who was totally a victim, who was, definitely trying to please people and that's definitely where i was for most of my childhood so it it kind of whenever i played a character it would sort of unfold in me that sense of <clears throat> this is who i am right now um a little bit not not from like i was a, a method actor but more about those were the issues that i needed to unravel i can relate to this and so i can express this authentically yeah and did you feel like that freed you up to be able to um not be second guessing yourself about how to play a scene or tap into Uh, an emotion uh, luckily when i'm when i'm in a in in a project that's really good and, and people are like excellent you know directors and the writing is good which doesn't always happen. Um, <laughs> but when I feel that support, I never second guess. When I've been invited to join the party and, and, and step up, um, I don't second guess. And I'm very much, I'm very directable. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I don't have a good director, I'm no good. Yeah. I'm just like, it's just, I feel that actors need direct. I think, you know, I think acting is such an interesting thing because you, you really do. It's such a, community effort you and, need and, to you need ha- you need to have everybody and it's it's such a you're so exposed yes. out there and I, it boggles my mind how casting directors and directors cannot understand how exposed it's like yeah yelling at an actor on set is oh. like yelling at somebody while they are naked in in 
in front of a room full of clothed people. It's it's, it's horrible. I, well, what's really interesting is um, so Bob Fosse, Star Eighty again. He, I, I learned so much from him. He was extraordinary, mm-hmm. but he was tough. And I had heard of stories where with Marissa Berenson or something, he'd like done something horrible, shown her something horrible. And I pulled him aside one day and I said, I know who I am. And if you embarrass me, yell at me, do something really horrible to me in front of other people, I will crumble and I will shrink, you know, I will Mm -hmm. pull into myself and I won't, I won't do, I won't do well for you. And I'm, I'm just, I don't know how, you know, Mm -hmm. Eric Roberts is going to do it. I don't know how other people and some people Mm -hmm. really respond well. I don't. I will absolutely, I'm not asking for praise, but don't criticize me publicly because I was so, I had such fear of that anyway. Um, so a- anyway, he was, he was good. After yes. <laughs> I was terribly worried that he yes. was going to be really, I, that was a, it was a really tough film. It was a really tough film. I, when I was done, I cut my hair cause I didn't want to have any relationship to that character. And I changed the color. I was just like, I was trying to be like, I'm not that person. Cause it, I'd lived with it for so long and i wanted it i want mm. i pursued that character i pursued the, the this sort of it was interesting you mean how you i really pursu- under- pursued the role or pursu- i pursued the role right he didn't want me at all he was right. like you're an athlete you've been in manhattan i don't know i don't get you for this and i was like oh no i you don't understand i really i, I get her i get you know and she was this victim of of a of a murder but you know but she was so I so understood that lack of voice, mm-hmm. and um, she was in many ways a little girl that, that kind of had not found her power. No, exactly. And was, so, and I felt that I felt I really understood that. Yeah. Not necessarily like maybe I'd been through that, but mm-hmm. anyway, it was interesting. And you know, any of the really strong and powerful roles, it was an. It, it, a slight expression of myself, but I think all actors are expressing pieces of, them, of themselves. Yeah. You just yeah. accentuate those pieces that are part of a character yeah. and, and, you know, make them bigger than life. Did your parents ever share, uh, or your father ever share any stories, uh, about your grandfather that struck you as being a part of this tapestry of dysfunction and you know it's interesting when you come from a home i was just with a friend who's like talking about her family and her mother tried to commit suicide three times and all this stuff and she's like when you're inside of it you don't know that that's not normal so stories would be told about my family and i didn't know any different. So my family was so dysfunctional. My sisters were so troubled, so troubled. And and addiction became the thing that enabled them to move through it, um, that I didn't know anything different. So stories didn't strike me. Gotcha. You know what I mean? It just didn't, didn't seem like an abnormal thing to listen to people talking about whatever 
weird thing they did. I mean, I thought there were certain odd things. Like my father told me about his dad taking him to a whorehouse at like 13 to so he could lose his virginity. Which was weird for that he was telling me that anyway. <laughs> but, yes. but secondly, I was like, well, who does that? But apparently that's what you do when you're a man who can't deal with those conversations. It's so funny. He could have written about it. He should have probably just written a story yes. for him and said, please read. But, you know, instead he was like about, which I appreciate. He was about the experience of. Right. Um, but, uh, you that's know, my trauma- dad. That's traumatizing for a 13-year-old, oh. even if it's physically exciting. That's yeah, still over, it's overwhelming. Because he was a little boy, he was a little boy, and he was raised mostly by his mother, my my grandmother Hadley. Because he, um, my grandfather left them when they were. He was my father was only maybe eighteen months old. He was or two, um, and he grew up in Paris. So he was raised by a woman, you know. And so this man that he would see periodically would do these extreme things. He would, for instance, they go hunting, and you know, but. He He'd never hunted before, or he would take him fishing, but he wouldn't let him fish. He made him watch. And nothing was ever explained. Um, so I think that that's what later in life I started to realize was abnormal, you know, and I and realizing, oh, I don't want a parent like that. I don't want to have no explanation. But I grew up in the 70s. Nobody explained anything, <laughs> you know, like nothing. You didn't understand anything that was going on. They yeah, just had a just, cocktail and, uh, you know, filled, dealt with it. Filled the room with smoke. Yeah, and filled the room with smoke. We we had my parents had something called wine time, and that was just the time that they, you know, they would knock a few glasses of wine back, thinking, you know, and they were nice at first, and then after three, four glasses, they then the. The shit started to get ugly. Things would get you know, intense. It would get intense. And I remember just this drudge, this dreading feeling inside my heart, just watching them become people I didn't, didn't like. I didn't like them. I didn't respect those people. Um, and it was hard. And, and this, yet and I wanted to, I wanted to protect them at the same time. From, from pain, just, from anger. Yeah, from- I guess protect them from what they were going to end up doing. So a lot of times, uh, and I talk about this in, in my book, Out Came the Sun, I talk about how, you know, I I would wake up in the middle. Well, I usually wasn't asleep, but I could hear that the family had finally, like, finished. They either partied or they'd had too much to drink and shit was flying around the room and people were bleeding and there was screaming. And I would go downstairs and I would clean up whatever mess had been left over. And I think, you know, now, not really realizing it at the time, that I I would hope that if I could clean up what had happened in the middle of the night, what the darkness that would occur at those hours that people were supposed to be peaceful and and whatever, um, that we could wake up and pretend and, and start anew and pretend like we lived normal lives. And nobody talked about anything, so I could pretend that until the next time. Um, but I spent a lot of nights uh, like with my cat watching me, uh, cleaning up that and not feeling sorry for myself. That's what I understood to be my job. I understood that to be the way that I could function in the world that I was living in. But 
There was, yeah, it just, night times were hard when I was a kid. And I would, I almost blacked out slept. So when I would sleep, I would black out. But sometimes I would wake up. I was thinking about this the other day. and I was thinking about coming here and talking to you. That I would wake up sometimes in the middle of the night, two, three, those very, very dark Mm -hmm. (laughs) hours that you're not quite supposed to be awake yet. And I couldn't sleep. And um, I would go downstairs and just think, I didn't know what depression was, but I knew that there was just such a deep sadness, such a darkness inside. My mother also had cancer. My father had had a heart attack and they drank all the time and, you know, dealt, dealt with things not at all. So those dark hours of just sitting there wondering if I would make it through, how, how, what it would be like and how would I make it through. I didn't ever have a suicidal thought back then. Uh, it, that happened later in life, but it was, it just was a, it was a jarring bunch of hours. It felt like hours and hours. I'm sure it was an hour, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure out what, what is done in the middle of the night that could help serve. So I think when there was a mess to clean up, at least it gave me something to do mm-hmm. when I would wake up in, in those kind of scary, scary hours. What were some of the other ways that you coped, either mental, mentally or actions that you took? Um, well, for me, nature has been a big, huge solace for me. It's been my biggest healer, and it's kind of something I truly believe in. I believe that, that, that to create balance in your life, you have to be – you have to think about what you eat, whether you drink water, how much you breathe – you know, and getting outside is hugely important. Those are the yes. soul and, solutions. And human connection. I and think human, those, a, yes. A human connection relationship is extraordinarily important. But getting out in nature when I was a kid was the thing that I would hike for hours by myself in the hills, running, hiking t- with my dogs, talking to, I don't know, birds. <laughs> a little weird. Um, <laughs> but that was how I felt alive you know when it was windy i could feel you know like just sensation on my skin all of those things breathing air coldness hot smells all of those things were really profoundly um helpful to me i i i longed for that's also i mean i i'm probably a pantheist more than anything else i felt that god was in the leaves and in the wind and and I felt like I was protected. It's hard. It's there. hard to not feel it when when yeah. you're, especially when you're in Ketchum, Idaho, yes. which is so beautiful yes. and it's so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I've only seen pictures of it, but um, it it looks it looks amazing. It's extraordinary, and I'm so thankful because I've always known that that was sort of what helped me through. Like it was took kind of, my hand and it's kind of like the parent that you needed. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved my parents. I mean, don't get me wrong. When they're your parents, you don't know any other people. Till I loved my mother who, you know, drank every night and had cancer. And I loved my father who was one of the great outdoorsmen of all time. Mm-hmm. He was extraordinary. The, the amount that he knew, we used to call him Mr. Encyclopedia because he just knew about everything. He was so 
well educated and so he had such incredible experiences in his life. So when you would get past the what they would do routine wise and get to the core of who they were as human beings, there was so much to love. But they didn't love themselves, you know, that that horrible thing and that that depression that my mother had. And I didn't even realize until she had passed and I'd written books and, you know, made the movie Running From Crazy. Um, I hadn't realized how depressed she was her entire life. She lost her first husband in the war. And I didn't even know she until till I was 16 when I found a picture of this other man with my mom I was like, who is this? I said to my dad. My dad was like, oh, ask your mother. <laughs> oh my God. Like the big secret. So I go to my mom. My mom's like, doesn't want to talk about it. And and then my sister, my other, my o- older sister, who was 11 years older than me, says, oh, mom was married before. I'm like, what? My mother was married, you know, and he died. Uh, he was a fighter pilot. But they'd only been married like nine months, so he'd never done anything wrong. So he was Prince Charming. He was like the guy that fell out of the sky, and now she's left the real world where she was depressed. And, you know, she never got over that. She never mourned that completely. She never went through it. And I never even knew. And it kind of made sense to me why she got cancer and had because she had so much resentment in her life i'm you know i get a little woo-woo about things like that but i do think that we we invite those things into our lives when we can't handle dealing with them and i think that that was also that kind of that's when we you know i think our generation is like oh let's work on ourselves like let's Mm -hmm. get therapy let's do this let's see what's going on we should, let's it, it, own own who we are and and where we've been yes and we, we've seen it modeled for ourselves and our parents generation Did there not. was no model for it and no to expect model. them and, to uh, have yeah. done otherwise is which is why you can't get mad about anything that happens in my opinion because mm-hmm. it's like they didn't know they did the best they could my my parents had were the you know the parents of my oldest sister schizophrenic bipolar suicidal tendencies and they just thought they had a messed up kid that did drugs at the end of the you know at the end of the 60s early 70s are you talking about uh, this Margo? Is no oh, margo okay. margo's my middle sister she had a lot of drugs too <laughs> and yes. and a lot of drinking but it was muffet that was the most challenging for them okay. because she was you know, she went into mental institutions, and I was told as a child that she was going to school. So we would go visit her, and I'd go, why are there bars on the windows of the school? And, you know, it was just weird, like, but nobody ever said anything. Nobody ever explained anything. You know, I didn't know that going in the middle of the night in January down the street of our hometown looking for my sister who was naked in January with a scarf like Isadora Duncan and dancing, you know, like I didn't know that that wasn't just that other families were dealing with the same thing. You know, (laughs) it was just weird. But I would be in the back of the car and just like looking and then, oh, I think I see her and there she was like, you know. So it's just that. And it wasn't, there was no poor me. It's just I didn't under, but what I realized is in those dark moments in the middle of the night where I was like, 
trying to process what I didn't understand, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, going back to the thing about, you know, it's hard to get mad uh, at them. I, I just want to clarify, too, for, for people who are going through the, the process of um, mourning maybe what they didn't get in childhood or trauma that they did experience in childhood, I think it's really important to deal with um, the anger at the situation, at, at what you didn't get or at what you had to experience, not necessarily to make your parents feel bad, but to let that anger out to process it so that you don't carry it around the rest of your life or or so that you don't feel like you're a bad person for for being angry at something. Oh yeah, I mean I, when I say, you know, you can't get mad. Of course you can get mad. Right. I, I just wanted to, I know no, you know absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yes. I I mean I spent a lot of years being mad and you know, and that was the part of the process. What I what I think happens is when you go through the process of understanding where you come from, realizing that you know, your parents did a lot of things that you are angry about and you get to be angry about them. But there, at some point we need to move on because ultimately they, they have to be forgiven for their lack of understanding in their own lives. No guy, you know, no, no guidance, like you said, no, nothing to, to, to look to. Um, but it is a process, you know, and and I feel like if we don't get if we don't develop some type of tool to to process those feelings, we can't organically get to that place where we can uh, forgive them. Um, oh, absolutely. Be- and and sometimes you know you'll have somebody say, uh, you know, you you need to forgive them as like in you know in order and like shaming that oh, person no, for. Oh no! For- and actually, you know, if forgiveness is not part of what you can do, then that's okay too. I make no judgment. I know that that was my process and I only share from my own experience. I know that forgiveness gave me freedom. Now, forgiveness for me is different. I wasn't abused by my family per se, really. I mean, I was emotionally probably abused, but there was nothing, (laughs) there was nothing intentional. You know, there was no sense that like my mother loved me and my father loved me and they respected me and they thought that I could parent myself just fine because I seem to be doing it, you know? So it's that for me, forgiveness intentionally hurt you. No, not at all. But forgiveness is a, is an interesting thing. And forgiveness doesn't have to be, Oh, I forgive, I forgive this person. Now I'm going to go hang out with them. Actually, I think forgiveness can be a process of acceptance. Forgiveness can be acceptance. It can be, I can't change what happened. So I accept that it did happen. And it doesn't mean that I have to hang out with that person, but I know that that is a compartment that I can put on a shelf and say, that happened. I accept that that happened. Mm. I don't have to live with that person or whatever. Right. I think that um, forgiveness ha- has many forms. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be cut and dry like, oh, now, like the Lord, <laughs> you know, yes. like if the Lord forgives me and I right. love the Lord, you know, like we don't, uh, you know, human beings are complicated and it's hard because the little person in us has a hard time, you know, Doing those things because we didn't feel loved or, you know, and during that time, it's like, 
I don't know. So, uh, you know, I think there's all kinds of interesting work that can be done, working on the child in you that never goes away, and just embracing them yourself. Because I think that that's the hardest thing for those of us that have struggled in any way, Mm -hmm. is that acceptance of our of ourselves of Mm -hmm. the little person in us that didn't understand and 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 being okay with that and embracing that little person that didn't get loved or you didn't feel like it was that person was getting loved and doing it yourself. That's an interesting journey. Yeah. As much as I hate the term self parenting, it's so true. It's, it's such an accurate term, uh, self love, whatever you want to call it, but, and making peace with the vestiges of the damage, uh, or the wounds that, that we occur because nobody gets through it through life unscathed and finding no. a way to manage whatever the the vestiges of the the wounds are is at least in my opinion the path towards self-love we're uniquely positioned to be our own best friend and we talk to ourselves in a way that if somebody else did we would get a restraining order absolutely i wrote that in my book i have a book called healthy living from the inside out and i talk about the the voice in the back of your head that was like if they came over for dinner you'd be like get the flip out of my house (laughs) who are you but we put up with it all the time and we're not even aware of how often that voice is coming you're not you don't look good you this you that yeah 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 yeah. and it seems like reality and it seems like reality but it's not and that and i say that to people you know that ask me about my own life or you know how do you get over those things i'm like pay attention to that voice and don't allow it because it's not you so what happens is to to people is I think that voice becomes so big, we mistake it for ourselves. We do. We do. You know? And that's why I think human connection and especially support groups and safe people and therapy are so important because for many of us, myself included, that I had to have enough people love me to know they couldn't be wrong. They couldn't all be wrong. Yeah. And that maybe I, I have a part of me that that is is lovable. is lovable and it sounds so cheesy to say that out loud but never taking that leap of faith and being vulnerable and sharing your insides with another person i i think it's impossible to get to a place where you can begin to make peace with who you are. At least that was my experience. I'm sure there are people who did it in a monastery, not speaking for two years, but um, that that wasn't my experience. Yeah, well, it's just everybody has their different path. I mean, there's, you know, there's no one way to a place of balance. I mean, it's like you said, you knew when you, uh, I guess we weren't, but I'm sure your audience knows that you mm. were on medication. You didn't yeah, take yeah. your medication and all that. Um, that You know that works for you. That's mm. your path towards balance. And everybody has a different path. I mean, I don't, I don't take medication, but I, it's not that I don't believe in it. It's mm. just that I don't need that. that because I, I've created a system or I've figured out the system that creates my own internal, like I can weigh how I'm doing. But I was never clinically, I guess, diagnosed mm-hmm. as any of those things. But I know that my sister, who's schizophrenic and suffers, she has to be on medication. Mm-hmm. And she does very well. 
you know, so it's just, it's all about finding the things that work for you. Absolutely. If, if you could get in a time machine and go back to talk to your younger self at any age, what would that be? And, or any, any range of ages. Right. What would you say or what would younger you have wanted to hear or say? Well, I, you know, I've done this. <laughs> done this probably too many times. Um, you know, the the young me, pro- there's probably different ages that I would have done that. Um, I know that three and four, I felt a, a bit invisible. In fact, one of my book, latest books was called Invisible Girl. Um, and I think that you know, if I were to say to her anything is that I can see you, I see who you are, and I love you. You know, it's as simple as that. It's it's the simple things. It's not really complicated because what do you, you know, I think I was given too complicated emotions to have to deal with at the age that I dealt with them. So I didn't quite understand them, but I pretended to. Um, so... I think I would also say to an older Marielle, it's okay that you don't uh, understand. You're not supposed to understand all of this. And you also don't have to fix it. It's not your job to fix your parents, your sisters, anybody. It's not even your job to fix fix yourself right now. (laughs) It's your job to be a child. And I think that I would say that to that sort of, I don't know, seven to... 14 year old girl that it's okay to be a kid. I didn't know how to be a kid. And it was really interesting because that would lead me to when I was parenting my own two daughters who are now 30, 29 and 30, that I, I would say to that woman, little girl who is being a little girl, you know, inside, who didn't know how to play with her daughters. It's okay. You weren't taught how to play. You weren't taught how to love really in an open way. I was really good at organizing things and doing a doing. Yeah. But I didn't know how to relax and do nothing and watch and laugh and have fun. And my life is so different now because I, I fill myself with laughter and fun and things that I never did as a child. And it's sad to me that my, my kids didn't get that because I didn't know how. And I, so I would say to that girl who was being a little girl, <laughs> you know, thinking that she was responsible for everything and only knew how to, cause I remember looking out from the kitchen window at the girls playing in the lawn with their dad at the time. And he was always the playing guy and having fun and they laughed and they were, you know, but I would look at my watch when I was out in a playground or something and like, how much longer does this have to go on? Cause I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to let go. And like it goes full circle back to my grandfather who didn't know how to be vulnerable at that time. What's interesting is I chose a profession that if you weren't being vulnerable, you couldn't, Mm. what you weren't really very interesting to watch. So I would put all my vulnerability into a place where I didn't have to call it me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I, I managed to be extremely vulnerable there. I mean, that would be the word that I would use to describe the work of yours that I have seen, which is, um, you know, like in Manhattan and in, in Star 80, there's this, um, this little girl quality, uh, helpless isn't, isn't the, the right word, but, um, um, just so, yeah, just so vulnerable. Yeah. Um, I think I was trusting. Trusting. That's the I perfect trusted. Word. I, I was trusting. And yes. I, and there was a part of me that was that. But as I got older and, and maybe the, the, the patterns of trying to be an adult or, mm. you know, whatever, I started to lose that sense of trust. And it's been an interesting journey. I met my now partner, life partner, who I'm, madly in love with and we're just he's opened up a part of me that it enables me to be i mean i is he the partner in running from crazy yes yeah yeah i mean and you are (laughs) so honest in that movie about your foibles and your struggles it's one of the things that makes it so so powerful it's I, i have been recommending this documentary since it it came out yeah thank you it I cried like a baby in the, in it's the a theater. Tu- yeah, I know. <laughs> Thank God we have the car scene because <laughs> at least there's some levity for a moment. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, you got to see it. And then yes. you'll understand what I'm yes. saying. <laughs> yes. Um, so where were we before, um, um, before that? Uh, oh, learning the, how to let go. Yeah. Learning how to let go and have fun. Yeah, it uh, was so it was so hard for me. Mm-hmm. I felt like such a bad parent. You know, I was good at all the other stuff and mm-hmm. you know. So how did you find the ability to do that? Well, oh, and I was saying that my partner, my life partner now, Bobby, um <laughs> so we've been together 10 years and in the very beginning we always had fun. Like it was always fun, but I I was challenged with <laughs> I was challenged with fun. Like if we're in a car, <laughs> if we're in a car and we're going somewhere and I think we're going to the movies or we're going somewhere and he would just pull the car to the side of the road and go, let's go up that hill and like see what's over there. And I'd be like, what? And he'd be like, "No, let's like walk over the hill, and we'll just like see." I said, "But we're going, to, we're going to a movie. Like we have a plan." Yes, I'm prepared to control that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we can go to the movie another time. Let's just go over here." So it was co- he was constantly throwing me into places of like I don't know what's going to happen, fear of the unknown. So yeah. I guess I was like, and he'd make me laugh all the time. And I would say to him, I don't, like, I, 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 this is crazy. Like, we're just laughing. He's like, yeah, you're supposed to just laugh. You're supposed to just have fun. But we're adult. He's like, I'm not an adult. <laughs> you know, he's my age. And I go, but we have to, you know, it was so, initially it was so hard for me to be okay with that. And I remember when my, and in the documentary, my daughter is looking at me on the trampoline and like my mom just did a backflip, right? 
And I, before seeing, being with Bobby, you know, I hadn't done a backflip since I was a kid on my trampoline in my backyard. And the kids saw me do that. And my daughter was like, my mom just did a backflip. Meaning like, you know, and my girls used to say to him, oh, when you leave, she'll go back to being like kind of somber. And, and it wasn't, and I could put on a good show socially, like mm-hmm. I, that I was happy all the time. But I realized I was completely, I had to have a role. I had to have a reason for everything. And Bobby brought spontaneity and just laughter for no reason and happiness because why not be happy? It's a good choice. And I be like, he taught me so much. And now, of course, I'm ridiculous. I, I mean, even initially, he would talk in a weird, like funny, you know, like mm-hmm. people get those weird voices. And initially, it was so, I was embarrassed. I would be embarrassed. It would be coming out of my mouth, and I'd be like embarrassed for myself <laughs> because I sounded. I was like, oh my god, I sound ridiculous. I sound, you know, it was so hard for me. Now, of course. Like, I'm ridiculous. I don't care that I sound like an idiot, baby, whatever. And I know how to have fun. But it took me a long time. It scared me. Because it it was, just like you said, it was losing control. I could control the moments that I could control. And I didn't know what it meant to just be free. And to to trust in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a moment you remember when you felt like, I've changed or a, or a series of moments. I think sadly, I'm such a slow learner that there's never one epiphany where I go, Oh, I'm this way now. No, I, it's, it was like a slow process where, but I do remember, um, being with Bobby at one point and we were laughing so hard that he had to pull the car to the side of the road. Um, because he just couldn't, like, he thought, I'll get in an accident if I don't put, because we were laughing so hard. And I looked at him and I was laughing and tears were running down my face. And then I started to cry, but like, it was an emotional cry. I was like, why are you crying? Because he doesn't quite understand that. I was like, actually, sometimes that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm actually really happy. Why are you crying? Anyway, I can't explain it to him still to this day. But I started to cry and I was like, you know, you, I've, I've never been seen before and you enable me to see myself. And that was, it was such a gift. I was like, oh my God, I waited my whole life and I didn't even know that that's what I wanted. So I guess that was the moment. Yeah, those those moments when we realize that maybe the universe does love us and yeah. what we thought was inaccessible for us isn't. Yeah. Um it's such an amazing feeling. Those yeah. tears of um happiness, relief. Yeah. Um journey well done. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, and 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 feeling a a a part of um something that i don't know it, it doesn't have words but no uh, they really don't like not swimming upstream for a moment yeah 
Absolutely. Absolutely. When it doesn't feel like a struggle and you don't even realize you've been struggling the whole time until you have that moment of relief. You're like, oh, wait a second. (laughs) Oh, this is what. Wait. (laughs) Like, oh, that's what they write about. (laughs) Because I used to think that was all bullshit. I did too. Yeah. I mean, I'm even, even with Bobby, I was like, before him, and don't get me wrong, I was married for a long time and, and all that, but being in love and being spontaneous and being joyous just wasn't it I, I had moments, of course, births of my children and mm. things that were extraordinary in my life, but they were not lasting. They and that was a surprise to me. Mm. I did something called brainwave optimization, which is balancing the hemispheres of the brain through sound. So your brain hears itself in real time and it helps balance the brain. Anyway, after doing several sessions of it, um, I just, I started to have like even keel days, like where I just felt good all day long, all day long. And I remember waking up and I looked over at Bobby and I was like, holy shit, I feel good again. He goes, what? I'm like, dude, I think that's been 10 days where I felt good. I wake I, my eyes open and I feel good. I've never, I had never known that. I didn't know what it was like to just feel good. Isn't it funny? When, no, when you it feel wasn't the- like it. Yeah, I wasn't on a high. Right. Yeah, so you- it wasn't like a, and I used to look for that, like over exercise or something. I would try nice. to do it through something. But it was just there, and it's called brainwave optimization. Brainwave optimization is it a is there a, called is, brain state brainstatetechnology.com. and they have they, you know, because of the FDA, they have to be very careful about what they say they can do. It's mm-hmm. basically they'll say, "Oh, it just makes you feel peaceful and stuff like that." Mm-hmm. But it was extraordinary in really changing the neural pathways in my brain so that they went. But I've. You know, my life's about finding those things that help to keep that balance all yeah. the time. Through nap, for me, it's finding natural ways that, you know, whether it's food and stuff. I've got a hemp oil I love. You know, like I find things because, and I share them because why not? You know, I never claim that they're going to save anybody, but they certainly help me to feel amazing in my life. Is there anything else that you'd like to uh, to share, talk about? Um, you know, I was going to bring up some some stuff from the documentary that is kind of heavy, and they're kind of secrets that you revealed. That, um, but you know what? Maybe we'll leave that. That that'll give peace, people a reason to go watch the documentary. And I feel yeah, like yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I said. There are some interesting things about the documentary that I addressed in my book because I felt that it wasn't which, addressed. Which book? Uh, Out Came the Sun. Okay. And that's the called. most recent? That's the most recent yeah. book. I did Out Came the Sun and Invisible Girl at the same time. Invisible Girl is my version of my childhood from my 14-year-old pers- perspective. Mm-hmm. And then Out Came the Sun is literally my life and my family's life from birth to now. Okay. <laughs> 
whenever it came out. <laughs> okay. So everything that was covered in Running From Crazy is... Yes. Is and covered. I address it in a different kind of way, um, you know, because there are things in the documentary that I say that, that I don't necessarily not mean, but I I was very specific about how to frame the information that I gave mm-hmm. in my book because I think... I think they were looking for it to be a little more salacious in the documentary. And it's good. You know, I love Barbara Koppel. She's amazing. She is amazing. She's an amazing filmmaker. And it's not like it's it's salacious and bad. It's just like... It did not feel exploitive or sensational at at all. all. It's just in the book, I explain like my relationship with my father and my relationship, the, the relationship my father had with my sisters in a very specific way that I think makes me feel better about how I talk about that. Um, just because I think that it's a complicated issue yeah. and it's not easily, I mean, we, I, I, everybody will watch it and it's just a, it's a me too generation and I don't want it to be about that. It, that's not what it's about. It's right. about a, a, a man who struggled his whole life to find his identity and, and used alcohol and, you know, and what, what that does to him and what that does to a person to make them not themselves. Yeah. You know. Uh, anything else that you'd like to share? I don't know. This has been wonderful. <laughs> I'm I'm so glad that you came by. I've been wanting to uh, have you as a guest for for a long time. So wow. I was thrilled that uh, that you came by. And well, thank um, you. It's really it, it's really a pleasure. I'm I really respect somebody that takes the time to have a real conversation, especially about these kinds of things. Because, like you you were saying before we started. It's important these conversations need to be had because people everywhere and all families and all people mm-hmm. have something, yeah. something, you yeah. know, it doesn't matter what it is. I, I listened to a couple of your podcast. I mean, it was, you know, like body issues. I could come back and talk to you about millions of things. We'll do it. We'll do it. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. She was also nice enough to sign a copy of her book, Out Came the Sun. And if you're a monthly donor, shoot me an email. The first person to email me, I will send you that signed copy of it. Um, this would also be a good place to say, please uh, help the show out financially uh, by either a one-time donation or um, becoming a monthly donor through PayPal or Patreon. It um, It's much needed, and it would uh, I would greatly appreciate it. I put the, I'll put the links up to all the different ways that you can help the podcast, either financially or non-financially. Uh, this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's an online uh, therapy provider, and uh, they're great. I really, really enjoy using it, and it's so convenient being able to do therapy from my living room. I do it via video, and um, it's it worked great. I'm a huge fan. So go to betterhelp.com slash mental, fill out a questionnaire, and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you, and you need to be over 18. Uh, this episode is also sponsored by... <laughs> Sponsored. This episode is also sponsored by Blinkist. If you are like me, the list of books you want to read is gigantic, and there's just 
There's no way that you're ever going to get through. So Blinkist has solved this problem once and for all. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. So you can read or listen to them and expand your knowledge all in under 15 minutes, anywhere, anytime from your phone. Uh, I listened to the one uh, on Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson and uh, the Blinkist version of that was great. I learned so many interesting things about him, and it only took me 15 minutes. Um, I recommend getting the Blinkist uh, version of Progress by Johan Norberg. Uh, you can get a summary of the key moments in human progress, and that's probably the next one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check out. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for you guys. Go to Blinkist.com slash mental to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash mental to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com slash mental. And we'll put the links to all this stuff on the website. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Airborne Medic. And he writes, I'm a veteran of the Iraq War and served three year-long plus tours as a combat medic in Iraq and struggle with PTSD, depression, and anxiety. The other day, I was listening to music and relaxing on my couch when my 11-year-old daughter approached me and said, do you think you will go to heaven when you die? I was about to tell her that I was not sure there was a heaven when she followed up with, you know, because of all the people you killed during the war. I immediately went and drank the pain away that night. Three days later, I got the courage to tell my wife that our daughter thinks I'm a murderer. My wife looked at me and laughed and said, she gets her empathy from you. So, I'm a fucking terrible soldier and a terrible father. And the reason I wanted to read this is because this to me is is an example of somebody that could use a support network, somebody that is not feeling understood. And I think if you got around a group of people who have experienced what you have experienced, you you wouldn't immediately jump to that conclusion about yourself. Because that's not what I thought about when when I read this survey. I didn't think, oh, your daughter thinks you're a terrible person. She's, she's just trying to sort out what all these big concepts are. Um, and in life and um drinking drinking the pain is is just a terrible long term solution um but i know how terrifying it is to ask for help um especially you, when you're in that place where you're feeling shame and depression and anxiety but um sending you some love man sending you some love uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Railer Mailer, and he is straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, uh, not sure if he has been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, my parents used to, quote, discipline me and my siblings with belts, shoes, extension cords, and their open hands. Yeah, an extension cord, definitely, um, you know. Times have changed, and that used to not be a uh, a concern for uh, society. You know, the spanking with the belts, but um, yeah, 
Any positive experiences? When it comes to my parents, I appreciate appreciate them working jobs that they hated to support me and my siblings. To that, I always want to help them out and make sure that they are happy, safe, and sound. It's hard to reconcile those feelings with the anger that I felt growing up and still have just underneath the surface. Uh, And that's such an important point to make because those two are not mutually exclusive. Just because your parents you know, that you experienced positive things with them doesn't mean you shouldn't process the anger you have about the things that were negative that you experienced. And that's not to, um, you know, demonize them. It's so that you can let go of that, those feelings that you're trapping because those drag us down, man. Sounded like a hippie there. Oh, those, those thoughts drag, they drag you down, baby. Can you dig? Darkest thoughts. I've been in a relationship with my significant other for all of my adult life, up to now, and I constantly think about cheating on her with other women. Part of this is because I'm not as attracted to her as I used to be, and sometimes I question whether I was ever really attracted to her, sexually, intellectually, or otherwise. I never experienced an overly attractive woman hitting on me, and I'm afraid that just as soon as I move in with and propose to my significant other, I'll get nothing but attractive women coming after me. Just about every woman that I come into contact with. I fantasize about being seduced by uh, some other woman out in public, having a torrid one-night stand without my S.O. ever knowing and carrying on this with behavior. With this behavior. Darkest secrets. I watch pornography constantly, probably more than the average person, it seems. When I get off to it, it sometimes feels better than when I'm with my significant other. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to read this because, um, you know, this has a lot of the hallmarks of somebody who has an intimacy uh, disorder or issue. Uh, Disorder is probably too strong of a word, but, um, you know, losing yourself in pornography, um, questioning whether or not you are attracted to someone. and, and then just retreating with all those feelings and not opening up about it um, to someone else or, you know, a therapist or the things that you can open up to your wife about, opening up to her about to see if that attraction will increase. Because in a long-term relationship, man, if there isn't a, um, like an emotional foundation to it where there's safety and trust and vulnerability and a willingness to have difficult conversations, it's it's gonna go south. You know, the physical attraction can only last so long. And the pornography to me is a it's a red flag. Not pornography in and of itself, but watching it constantly. That's you know, you're you're running from something and um it's better to find out what that is than to keep running from it. Um because you know, you you are worth more than being lonely and just retreating. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm really turned on by the thought of a sexually attractive and aggressive manager or boss dominating me and using me sexually in any way that she sees fit, like I'm their plaything. Anytime that I object to her making me feel used, she gets rough with me in private and tells me that she owns me and will do whatever she wants to me. Then that person would essentially invite a group of mature, attractive, and sexually aggressive women over to the house and would make 
me get them all off over the course of a long night or weekend and threaten to punish me if I don't. I'm going to recommend a holiday weekend. Um, Just in case it's an extra large group, you get a couple of stragglers coming in there. She's basically pimping me out to all of her friends. All of this is done in front of the other women who are shouting out commands and jeers of approval. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I love you, but I feel like you're blocking me from truly enjoying my life, and I'm so tired of having to take take care of all of your emotional needs before my own. I wish you would stop overreacting to me expressing myself and realize that when you do that, it causes me to retreat further into myself. I wish I could just let loose and be myself around you, but because our relationship has been built on me not doing that, I doubt it ever will. Well, there, there is a great place to start, and I think joint counseling would be a perfect place because you'd have a neutral partner um, who, who could weigh in on this. And if your partner doesn't agree with that person, at least then you have information to make a decision uh, that, okay, my, my partner isn't interested in trying to grow and is defensive and isn't willing to work on themselves. That's a, to me, that's a deal breaker in a relationship. So um, you would have more information about whether to stay or not. And you'd find out whether or not your partner is willing to work on it. And you might have somebody call them on their shit and help them grow. You know, you might be helping them as well. Or Maybe they won't grow, but then you can you can decide what it is you're going to do, and they might call you on some of the stuff that you're doing. But either way, you both wind up having a better chance of being the person that you want to be and being with the kind of person you want to be. What, if anything, do you wish for? For my life to have balance, excitement, confidence, deep love, great mind-blowing sex, and a sense of peace within myself. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. Every time I come close, the other person bites my head off before I can even get to it, and then I back away. So the answer isn't to not do that. The answer is to find different people to do that with. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better than I got it all out, but ultimately still disappointed that these things are still going on and likely will for a long, long time. But that decision is up to you. A form of insanity is waiting for other people to change and resenting them for not doing it. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'm glad you're out there and hopefully we can meet soon and encourage and commiserate with each other. Thank you for that. That was a really, uh, really important survey because that is such a common thing. And the cliche is true. There is nothing more important in a relationship than communication. Um, this is a shame and secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lala, Lala Romana. And uh, she's straight in her 40s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, having a doctor in my childhood touching what I considered inappropriately and remember having to take all my clothes off for a basic checkup. Every time I had to go to this pediatrician, I became violently ill. Yeah, that does not sound uh, like 
a normal doctor visit and, um, children's instincts are, are usually right about what is safe and what isn't. And, uh, it sounds like that motherfucker should be in jail. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. Um, one particular relationship had the man taking advantage of my insecurities and neediness, and I eventually found out he had gone back to his wife while still telling me we were going to have a future. Once I broke free, I was stalked, and he was furious that I had gained my power. Um, darkest thoughts, killing people who have taken advantage of me. Darkest Secrets was part of an adulterous relationship because I believe the manipulation and the lies being given to me to keep me powerless. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I imagine others in romantic fairy tale situations. It's never me. It's like an alternate world fan fiction movie. I create realities for literary or famous characters. These enable me to live in a fantasy world where all is simple and pure. I usually write these down in notebooks to revisit. I have never shared my stories or writings with anyone. You know, the thought just occurred to me, this, if you want to share these with someone, I think the forum for this show would be a great place to do that. There's a lot of really, really cool, sensitive, open-minded people there. And I know some of the people in the forum, I don't pop my head in there too often, but I know people do share their uh, creative endeavors with, with each other in the forum sometimes. And, and the forum is just great in general. If you want to, if you just want to connect with other people and talk about stuff that, you know, that we don't talk about at cocktail parties. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell the man who used me that I want him to forget we ever met. I refuse to speak to him, so that kind of precludes my grand moment. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace and for the guilt to go away. And she has shared these things with the therapist, and they went well. Uh, after writing these down, she feels uh, a bit of relief. Thank you. Thank you for that. This is uh, another shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Solitude. He is straight in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused. He's been emotionally abused. Uh, I was manipulated by a girl I wanted to date for many years. Looking back, I think she was probably just frustrated by me missing the signals that she wasn't interested, but she nonetheless reacted in ways that destroyed my sense of self-worth. This all occurred while, as a teenager, I was discovering new feelings of depression and heavy mood swings. The best example I can remember, at one point, my outlet was to write poetry in a private journal. This girl had my locker combination, and one night after everyone left school, she and her friends went into my locker, stole the journal, and wrote hurtful liner notes about my writing. When I wrote about suicidal thoughts in the journal, they drew pictures of what it would look like and recommend that I try them. I have avoided poetry ever since, even years later as an adult. It is so fucking awful. Uh any positive experiences. 
with the people who abused you. I eventually ignored her after I moved away for college. She came and visited many years later, and it didn't hurt as much as I expected. I like to think that I matured beyond her behavior, but I don't think I've ever matured beyond my feelings of embarrassment and shame around her. We've never talked about how much that experience and many, many others crushed me. I don't think I'll ever forgive her, and it makes it difficult to pretend that nothing's wrong. Thankfully, we rarely speak anymore. You know, and my thought is it it would be good to, I mean, that's traumatic being shamed like that when you're at your most vulnerable. I think some type of trauma therapy like EMDR or something else, a somatic experiencing would, would be really great because uh, so much of the processing of trauma is done without any contact with that other person that isn't about them. It's about us processing what we felt in the negative self-beliefs that we kind of took on and drive us today if we don't deal with them. Darkest thoughts. I'm suicidal on a daily basis. I have been since I was 16. And once, after the aforementioned journal incident, I attempted to take my life, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. I never told anyone that it happened. Somehow, that attempt solidified that I would never try again either. As an adult, I'm starting to sense that the darker corners of my mind want to test me. Suicidal thoughts never went away over a decade, but I've always been in control. In the last two years, a combination of work stress, my job is the only pride I have, loneliness after relocating, and a heavy period of self-decline, my suicidal thoughts have grown deeper and darker than I ever expected. These days, shame is a tidal wave washing me of any pride while I sink violently into the icy hatred that I hold for myself. It erodes my control and I worry that it pushes me closer and closer to the shores of hell. I've always felt this way about myself, but as I lose my sense of control, I fear that I'll take action one day. Lately, that fear feels like the only thing I can hold on to while I continue to take my life apart by, my, by mistake. You would so benefit from getting help. You would so, so benefit. That is so much that you are trying to shoulder on your own. And that is, it's just, I've tried to do it, man. And it is no way to go through life. And it feels like, at the time, like the smartest, safest choice. But it is not. It is one of the most unsafe choices that we can make, is trying to go through life without vulnerability and without human connection. And the answer isn't, don't risk being hurt. The answer is, get better at recognizing who is safe and who isn't. And that takes time. Darkest secrets. I'm a virgin. Personally, I wouldn't look down on anyone else who is a virgin, but it is still the ultimate source of embarrassment for me. I never really had trouble dating in school, but I think I was very careful. I went to a college where less than 30% of the students were women, and I've never really been particularly attractive or charismatic. Since I also had no confidence, I found that it was easier to convince myself that I wasn't worth anyone's time, and I retreated further into my studies. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I don't really fantasize I suppose when I was younger I would think about what my first time would be like but these days I feel so pathetic thinking about it that I give up even before the mood strikes I tell myself I have better things to do but I'm convinced that is an empirically false statement um You know, 
How do you feel after writing these things down? It was nice to organize my thoughts. I should probably seek therapy. Or a support group, either one. But you deserve love. You deserve to be seen. You deserve to feel validated. Because everything that you wrote in this is so human and so universal. And yet, when we're in that dark place, we shame ourselves and we tell us that nobody is as pathetic as we are. We are all so much more related and alike inside than we can ever imagine. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself, I'm positive this is negative. Um, and I wouldn't even classify this as an awful moment. Um, uh, to me, this is j- just something that I wanted to address. Uh, he writes, 1916, this is the number of photos I have surreptitiously taken of random women who turned me on in one way or another during the past month. I've been doing this for the past nine years. I want to stop. I don't know how. There is, There are places that you can go for help with compulsive behaviors and this isn't going to go away on its own. And, you know, it's only going to lead to you destroying parts of your life or your life and hurting other people. And people can change. It's about the feelings underneath the compulsive behavior that's the key. And we can't do that without the objectivity of of other people who are knowledgeable about it and want to help us. So I really encourage you to, to go get help. Shaming, just simply shaming yourself and hating yourself is not a solution. And, uh, you know, I say it a lot of times, but nobody has ever shamed themselves into being the person that they want to be but they have become the person they want to be by taking that leap of faith and getting vulnerable with another human being and asking for help and growing and then also helping other people. Um, This is a heavy one. And again, I would classify it kind of like the previous survey because there's nothing funny at all uh, about this. Um, It's filled out by Flipper. And she writes, my father is presently sexually abusing me and I am miserable. And she's in her 20s. I cannot get out of the situation at the moment, but it's in the works. The twist is that he is at his most tolerable, loving, fatherly, calm, patient person ever right after fucking me. So I fuck him so he'll be nice to me. And anyone who, hearing me read this who thinks that there's no way a 20-year-old could still be getting sexually abused by a parent, they don't understand the head trip of sexual abuse and the disconnect between the intellectual knowledge of what's going on and the emotional barrier of being able to advocate for ourselves, Um, especially if we don't have any alternative to get scraps of moments of love or 
attention. And, um, yeah, I've heard many stories like this. And, um, the good news is that you're planning to get out of there. And, um, yeah, I really, really hope that you start taking care of yourself, that you get to the place where you can find the strength to, to stand up to him. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I forgot to shave my big toe. That might be one of my favorite names ever. Uh, she identifies as bisexual, other than in parentheses, I don't know what the fuck I am. That's all right. We, you don't have to uh, uh, identify. Uh, she's in her 20s. Uh, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. My dad was emotionally unavailable. My mom is most likely uh, borderline personality disorder, and my brother was uh, uh, ODD, which I think is oppositional defiance disorder, something like that. I was my mom's emotional support system from an early age, and I was angry at my dad for physically abusing my brother. I mostly hide alone in my room to avoid them. I have borderline personality disorder and dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, that's more than slightly dysfunctional, the stuff that you described um, growing up in. Um, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Um, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I became a sex addict around the age of 9 or 10. I was addicted to sex chat rooms and masturbated compulsively to the thought of being with a child molester. It made me feel powerful. I knew they'd be so turned on by a young girl being turned on by them. I used to touch myself after watching To Catch a Predator, wishing it could be me. Now I see how badly it has affected me. I feel guilty, like I sexually abused myself because it was a choice to go online for hours every day. I had such bad body image because every year I got older, I felt less sexually attractive. I was such a lonely, isolated little girl. I wish I could go back and save myself and give that little girl a hug. This is going to sound corny, but it's never too late to do that. You know, I... Somebody suggested one time that I talk to pick a picture of myself from the age where the stuff that I was experiencing was was the worst, and I did it, and I just broke down and started crying because I saw how innocent that kid was, you know, that 11-year-old me, and that opened the door for me to be more loving towards myself Um but, you know, that, this is all so complicated, you know, and it doesn't matter how we classify things. Uh, what matters is getting to the root of, of these things and unwinding that negative self-talk and finding tools to deal with life. She's been emotionally abused. My mom telling me my friends don't care about me, that no man will ever love me. She's the only person who loves me, and I don't deserve that love. Uh, Whoop-dee-doo. I used to think I was a bad or evil and put her on a pedestal. Now I see that she is a sick person. Any positive experiences with them? Yes, I love her so much. I feel like it's my job to protect her, even though it's a toxic relationship. I feel guilty trying to leave. Um, 
I highly recommend reading the book Silently Seduced by Kenneth Adams. Um, for people who were raised um, with a parent who treated them like a partner, it can really fuck up uh, your ideas of sex and intimacy. And that book is like the Bible on understanding that stuff. Uh, Darkest Thoughts, Doing a Gang Bang or Bukaki. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Bukaki, Bukaki, Bukowski. That's actually where they bury you up to your neck and then somebody reads you uh, really cutting-edge poetry and then they come on you. Uh, from Strangers on Craigslist. I also used to think about helping a pedophile find an underage girl and help grooming her, but I haven't thought about that one in a while. Deepest, dark, deepest, darkest secrets. I masturbated with my mom sleeping in the same bed. I did it out of anger while we were on a three-week vacation together. Fucking disgusting. You are not disgusting. You are a human being who has been through traumatic events and severe neglect and abuse, and you haven't been shown tools to deal with with the feelings that any fucking human being would have. And that's what we do in the absence of tools as we reach for the first thing that makes us feel something else. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Daddy slash little girl incest, especially one daddy fucking lots of little lucky girls at a sleepover. Or... Uh, a dominant girl making me eat her pussy. It makes me wish I could act it in real life. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Tell my dad that I love him, and I'm sorry I was a bitch to him growing up. Um, you know, from what you shared in your survey, um, you know, not that you didn't ever act out as a kid or ever have things that you should apologize for. Um, it it just what you experienced, um, there should definitely be some apologies coming your way from the people that raised you. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I, uh, I had DID, and I wish I could stop spacing out and running into walls and having body spasms, also to make some friends. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, but I only feel comfortable telling them if I feel certain they are equally or more fucked up than I am. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Like you're going to criticize my grammar and sentence structure. Uh, like I'd love to meet you if you're ever uh, in my city, but you might be bored by my company. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're not alone. Get your ass to a support group. Um, and that's what I would like to say to you. And by the way, I love uh, when I go do a live event uh, after the event, I love meeting listeners, sharing a handshake or a hug, and just getting to face-to-face, -face, see the people that, that listen to the podcast, and whether you know it's me thanking them for listening or them thanking me for, for doing the podcast. It's, it's a really great community, and um, you sound like a really, uh, just a really sweet soul who is in a lot of pain and I think a support group would be so so great for you 
any comments to make the podcast better? Have you ever talked to someone who was mentally stable? In 1996, I had a brief elevator ride with someone who looked put together. Um, I think that's the only one, but they didn't say anything. They just looked like they had their shit together. So yeah, I have. And then uh, finally, this is a happy moment filled out by, and it's a little bittersweet, but it's filled out by a guy who calls himself not a robot, I promise. And he writes, after my wife suddenly left me this year, I took a short vacation to visit my sister and her family in California. While I was pleased to be able to see my sister, her husband, and her two daughters, I was kind of apprehensive about her youngest child, my nephew, who is six years old now but was only two when they moved to the Bay Area. I was worried that he would see me as a stranger and we would not connect for my visit. I arrived at their house late in the evening and the kids were already asleep, so I made my way to the guest bedroom and turned in. I woke up the next morning very early, before the family, not wanting to be a bother as they went about their routine. I made up the bed and started reading a book I had brought along. Soon enough, the house was full of chatter as my nieces got ready for school and their parents got the day started. In the midst of all this, my nephew, upon learning that I had arrived, came running into the guest bedroom and immediately climbed up into my lap. He was very happy to see me, and we spent the morning reading books together and finding funny memes on my phone. When his mom came to help him get ready for school, he hugged me and promised that he would be home later so we could play with his Legos. Having been recently severed from the person who was closest to me, I had been feeling a void, and while the innocent love of a child didn't repair that, it did go a long way to putting me on a better path, which I'm still pursuing. Thank you for that. And just what a beautiful reminder of the, of the power of, of love and human connection and vulnerability and um, letting other people love us. Even if it's a fucking six-year-old kid that wants to, to play with Legos, it's still love and it's still human connection. And, um, you know, even animals. God, there's so many people whose lives have been saved by a pet that they feel validated by, that they feel seen by, that they feel like needs them. And um, yeah, it's all about connection and ice cream and unfrosted Pop-Tarts. Uh, I've got some unfrosted blueberry on the way from a kind listener. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed uh, this week's episode. And uh, if you're out there and you're struggling, just remember you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.